Thank you, Emily. You guys can have a seat. Emily, I think even as you asked that question of like can, thinking about the character that we appreciate of Jesus, even as you guys were singing your guys' song of God being a God who always sees us even in bare and desperate seasons, and as Chris has been talking and Donna has been teaching as well, why do we know sound doctrine, right? So that we can sing songs like that, and even in the midst of a bare and desperate season, you know that we have a God who always sees us. And so I'm going to cry because I'm a crier, but I'm thankful for that characteristic and that quality of our God. So I just wanted to say that. Um, this morning, we have something a little bit different going on. Um, we have got a panel kind of discussion. And so some of you guys have written out questions and gave us those questions on Tuesday morning, which we then gave to our speakers. And so we're going to invite our speakers on up. Um, and we are going to hear from them about the different topics that you guys wrote out on those questions. Two people that you will see this morning that you have not recognized, maybe, from the rest of the week. Uh, we have got Wagon Master Emeritus Chip and or Aaron Logan. He is a pastor down at Grace Church of the Valley in Kingsburg. And the one, the only, Cliff Carey. Ooh, ooh, which we are very excited that you're all here. I just I just had to do that for you, Cliff. Um, so that being said, we, um, Jebby, will you grab those two microphones over there? Um, and we can give one to Donna and then one over on the other end of Chris. Um, I don't know where Jeb and I are going to stand. We haven't got this far, but we'll just go on either side of you guys. How's that? Um, so that being said, you guys, there, are, there was kind of three main themes that came out of the questions that you guys had written and um, gave to us. One, which was not surprising, um, but a lot about how do I talk to my students about um, specifically homosexuality, but also sexual identity, transgenderism, which is just, for me, and I'm sure for the other camp directors could attest this, in camp, a rising theme uh, amongst students who are continually asking those questions. So we'll be hitting um, sexual identity topic, we'll be hitting, uh, there's a few questions that were asked specifically about heretical teaching. How do I spot heretical teaching? How do I help my students, train my students to be able themselves to spot heretical teaching? And then some practicals of, man, how do you sustain through ministry? How do you not give up? How do you run the race of endurance that is set before us? And so those are kind of the three main topics that we'll be hitting. Jeb and I will go back and forth and ask the questions, and then we will hear from these wonderful individuals um, kind of well, not just their thoughts, but their experiences, and then also, man, what does the Bible say about these topics? So the first question um, that we will ask, and anyone who wants to jump, on, jump in can, uh, what are the best steps to take when a student confesses that they are homosexual? We're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when Sarah sent me these questions, I told her that, is it, as I asked, is it an issue if for every question I just give the answer, preach the Bible? Um, she told me it's not, so that's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, obviously it's a difficult question, right? There's a lot wrapped up in, in the questions of sexuality, of sexual identity, and even in the way the question is phrased, um, when a student tells you they are a homosexual, that's an interesting way to phrase a question, right? Because is a student going to come and tell you, like, hey, I'm an adulterer uh, because I've looked at a woman lustfully? Is a student going to come and tell you, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thief. Hey, I'm a, I'm a murderer. Hey, I'm... 
No, they're going to tell you what they did. But in this question of homosexuality, they're phrasing it so often as who I am or, or what I am. Um, and so a passage, I think, that plays so much into so many of these questions, um, specifically dealing with sexual ethics, with sexual identity, um, is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so it's 1 Corinthians 6. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, it says this, Do you not know that those that are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you go, okay, so a student comes to me and says, I'm a homosexual, and the first thing you want me to do is to tell them that they're going to hell and they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, on some level, yes, but, but what I want you to do is I want you to continue on to the very next thing that it says there. So after listing these, these sins um, and these, these kinds of sinful states, the very next thing it says is this, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. So what Paul does there, right, is he moves from these are the, this list of sins, these, these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he says, that's who you were, but that's not who you are. Who you are now is you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And so that student, if that student claims Christ, I think you do the same thing Paul does. You remind them of who they are, that who they are is not defined by that sin, who they are is not defined by that temptation, who they are is defined by Christ who bought them and paid for them and washes them in his word and sanctifies them and has justified them. So it's a reminder of their identity. It's a long process, but I think that's where you have to start. Thanks, Chip. I'll jump into something really quick. Um, in addition to all of that, I think what's really important is making sure that that like the structure of your youth group um, is, a, is a safe place. So like I think about those conversations and it's like what does your small group structure look like so that students still feel loved. It's not just like one youth pastor at the top who like just you know speaks this one thing and then they just isolate themselves. It's like do you, for any of these hard conversations that are coming up, I mean right now it's just sexual identity but who knows what it's gonna be. It's like, is there a safe space for them to know, oh, even when I get a hard answer, there's at least one person that like represents this church that I know regardless will still like meet me tomorrow for coffee, like no issue. Um, I think, so uh, my sister, she didn't come out to my parents until she was out of high school, but later to find out had, you know, really explored all of those things all through high school. And I look back, we were obviously in the same youth group. And I, I just feel like it, there wasn't a safe place for her to like really express it. It was just like, this is what's said. Kind of like, it's what Chip is saying. It's like the, only the first verse was read. <laughs> and then she didn't have any place to like process that with anybody. So one, I would say whoever's asking this question, it's a beautiful thing that your student would even be willing to come to you and even mm -hmm. confess it to you and say like, this is where I'm at. What does this mean? Um, but I think it's just important to think through, like, is there a safe space for your students so that when they do have that conversation with you, that they want to continue to come back um, to process mm -hmm. it more um, and to step into that new identity that Chip talked about? 
Hello. Hello. Thank you, Chris. Um, it's funny is when we were talking about this yesterday, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with this question. And then <laughs> last night as I was sitting down, I wrote a whole page of notes on it. Um, I, I, I think of two things. One is uh, I think we do our students a disservice when we tell them, come as you are, but we don't go past that, come as you are. Um, you know, a, a church where we, when, when I was back in youth ministry, one of the little sayings we had in our youth ministry was safe, but not comfortable. And, and the idea is you could come as you are, but if you're going to remain as you are, it's gonna be a mess, right? And, and that none of us, when we come into the church, should just remain this, this sinful mess. Like, God should be transforming us, right, in, in every single way. Mm -hmm. and, and if I stayed as I am, I would be a selfish jerk that, you know, only thinks about, you know, what my needs are and thinks I'm the most important thing around. But, you know, God transforms me in that area, and God can transform these kids in gender identity, all of those kinds of things. And, and one of the ways I see this is there's a, a dad of one of the kids that was in our youth group that decided to take me out to lunch in my first two weeks at our church. And he, the, one of the first words out of his mouth were, um, I have struggled with same-sex attraction through much of my life and into my adult life. And I'm looking like, you got a wife and you got four kids. And, and basically said that to him. He's like, yep. And we learned how to, to work through that and to not let that be my identity. Um, and so to then start to tell to these kids transformational stories because they don't have to be stuck as they were, right? Um, and show them hope, but yeah. So don't let them just stay there safe. Like, that's great, but transformation needs to take place. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Cliff. Couple thoughts. One is give your students well, give yourself time to respond to your students. So when someone hits you with something hard, don't put pressure on yourself to have a perfect answer right then, but definitely give the, them the impression that you're going to walk with them through this. So you sit down, you talk for 45 minutes, and you say, let's both think about other questions and issues that come up this week and get together next week and talk about it. And give yourself time to process and come up with your answers. And in the meantime, read good books. I am such a book nerd, but... I lean on books so heavily. But read Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. That's a, that's a must on your list, absolutely, because it helps you understand what our culture now is teaching us all about what it means to have these bodies and how we relate to them. It's really helpful on issues of homosexuality, transgenderism, transgenderism abortion, all kinds of issues. But do yourself a favor and read that book and many others that will help prepare you to have answers. But don't feel like you have to have it on the spot. Not many people are really good really fast. So give yourself permission for that. A second thing I would say is I think it's helpful to normalize some things for some people. So the kid who comes forward and says I'm having some same-sex attraction might feel like they're the only one, especially if your church is on the smaller side. They may be the only one. But we need to be able to normalize things for people sometimes so that they don't feel like odd man out. And, and say to them, it's, the longing for intimacy is, is God's gift, but we need to direct it. We need to make sure that, it, that we 
um, move toward intimacy with people that are within the parameters, right? We talked last night about running the race according to the rules. We all desire things that are outside of the parameters. That's how we can relate to the, the one who's coming forward and saying, I have same-sex attraction. We all desire things that are out. If you're married, you might desire something that's outside of your marriage. But out of obedience, we say no to those things. But we can relate. We can relate to, to the, the student who says, I have this desire. But they need to know you're sacrificing things, too, for the sake of obedience. So, Cool. Thank you, guys. That's awesome. This question is very similar, so we can maybe see if we want to move on. But um, not out of disrespect to the question, but I think we touched on a lot of this. How do we help students who struggle with same-sex attraction, who recognize it's not what God would have for them, but they never overcome or have overcome the same-sex attraction or desire? So anyone else want to add anything to that? Yeah, Yeah. to that one, um, I think Cliff really hit on this. Like, we need to be careful in how we talk about hope with students, with their struggles and their temptations. Because what we don't want to do is say, hey, God has promised to take this temptation away from you. But we also don't want to do is say, hey, God has promised that he will not take this temptation away from you. So specifically, when we talk about sexuality, same-sex attraction, um, I think we need to acknowledge with students, hey, it might be God's will that, um, that he's going to take this temptation away and that you're going to develop opposite sex attraction and you're going to have a, a wonderful, fulfilling, godly, God-honoring marriage and that might be the, the future that God has for you, but also it might not. And maybe overcoming this looks like not feeling that temptation anymore, but maybe it just looks like being faithful in the midst of that temptation mm-hmm. and acknowledging that God, the God who saved them from their sins, can also, yes, save them from that temptation, but he may not choose to and he may use that in their lives as his sanctifying power. And so, I mean, you mentioned just a, a, a man who, who still struggles with that but has overcome it in, in different ways. And so it doesn't always look the same, but we don't want to say that God can't do something. We also don't want to say that God has promised to do something that he hasn't promised. Yeah, and it could be so helpful to connect your students with people who have walked that road. You know, to connect them maybe with this, this man that Cliff is, is referring to. Or if not people in person, if, there, if there's not someone in your church who has walked that road and had victory that you can connect your youth with, you can through books, right? You can connect them. You can give them Rosaria Butterfield. You can give them Jackie Hill Perry. You can introduce them to Beckett Cook's podcast. I mean, there are people who have walked this road and at different levels of involvement, but who have had victory. And, and it's important that our students know that. They're not the first, and they're not stuck. And I think, Donna, if you wouldn't mind, I know for me, someone write it down for me, but if you could say those authors' names again or the podcast oh, yeah. well, names. Beckett Cook has a podcast, really helpful. And Jackie Hill Perry, wonderful teacher and wife and mother who was involved in a lesbian relationship, and Rosaria Butterfield, such helpful things that she says. Yeah, there, there are others, but those are some that I have found really helpful. Jebby, you want to ask the next one that you have here? Yes. Um, next question, how do I 
deal with my feelings as a student asking this? How do I deal with my feel feelings of sexual identity? And then tag along question with that was asked, how does pornography harm me? I'll start. All right. <laughs> I'm going to start again. Um, I mean, I think we, we've addressed the sexual immorality thing. I think, um, and, and, and sexual identity, um, a lot of the same answers to, to the question of pornography. I, I, it's hard to tell the way the question is phrased, but I think often, especially with the question of pornography, um, we're tempted to give practical answers. And we're tempted to say, how does pornography harm you? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you in relationships down the road. It, it'll, it'll make intimacy difficult. Maybe even physically will make intimacy difficult. It's gonna, it's gonna warp your, your brain and the way that you view sex and the way that you view relationships, the way that you view the opposite sex. It's going to hurt your marriage. It's going to um, maybe even lead to, to depression and to low self-esteem. And, and all of those things are true, but ultimately, pornography harms you because it's sin that damns you to hell. It, it, it harms you in the ultimate sense that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a sin for which Christ died. It is sexual immorality. It is um, idolatry. And so we, we should give them those practical answers, but we never want to live in this kind of pragmatic place where all of our answers to these deep spiritual questions are pragmatic ones. Um, and, and ultimately, the, the harm of pornography is is that it's sin against the holy God. I'll just say, um, I, I think with a lot of these questions, I've learned this a lot over the last couple years, being in relationship with my sister who is uh, married to another woman. She, there's just such a different worldview. It's just like, I think we'll get to a question that's kind of like this, that, that talks about it probably next, but it's making sure that our students like walk through what it even means to have a worldview. Like, cause they just don't even realize that like, even that word worldview, it's like that the world just has a different way of processing things and a different set, you don't want to say rules, but it really is like a different set of rules that they operate by versus like what God has established in his word. And so we can say these things like talking about like, well, that's not your identity. That's not who you are. Like that even has to be kind of broken down. Um, Chris mentioned it yesterday in his um, seminar, but he was just talking about like for this generation, like the thing that you should be studied up on most is, most is apologetics, like to be able to explain your faith, like what is the foundation of it? And so I think for all of these questions, it's like, you can teach a sermon on it, but really are you helping your students understand that there's a whole other way of our minds and our hearts operating that is in every sense contradictory to the world. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to admit that first and then move forward from there. Um, I may just open up a ugly web here in a second, <laughs> uh, which I think is actually a bit of a transition into the next question. Uh, 
to so to be overly pragmatic, I, I feel like we have <laughs> a uh, a problem with with worldview that we are just constantly catching up with the things that are feeding our students worldviews, and and so. You know, there are questions down the line here about TikTok and the influence of false teachings and other social media. And, and I'm sitting here looking at going, yeah, like, not only is social media, like, it's contributing to their worldview and in, in so many ways defining, but, but so is their education. Um, all these things are coming through. So how can we, as youth leaders, actually get ahead of the things that are contributing to their to their current worldview that are taking them down these paths, um, rather than just trying to be reactive all the time and going, um, well, now that you're on TikTok and now that you are doing these things and seeing these things, all right, well, let's get ahead of it. I'm like, I'm not saying TikTok is evil, but man, if if I'm going to have a middle schooler, I want to be sure they understand long before they ever get onto it what it's going to be feeding them. Right, and even like knowing curriculum at school and what they're going to be seeing in school, and so as youth leaders, if we can join with parents and get ahead of the game, I, I think we're going to start to to see a little better ability to um, mitigate some of those influences that are coming their direction. And I know that's a very old traditional kind of answer, but I'm an old soul at heart. <laughs> Just at heart. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding, Cliff. You're the best. Donna, did you have anything to add on to that one well, and before we jump to the next kind of section? Just to go along with what Chip said, I mean, I just think that our main responsibility is to put before our students the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of intimacy with him that is trashed when we <laughs> choose sin, whether it's pornography or homosexuality or any other sin that we might find. It's trash, the beautiful things that God is offering us. And so we have to help our students see the beauty of it. And we only mm -hmm. do that way. He has revealed himself in his word. If you haven't read Gentle and Lowly, my favorite book last year, I would read that and I would, uh, I would put those truths about Jesus before your students and help them love him and desire the kind of relationship with him that they don't want to trash by these the kind of choices that we're talking about. Mm. Um, so kind of the next section of questions, which we'll jump into where you were going, Cliff. Um, you guys had asked a few questions about heretical teaching and how you spot that. So the first one says, how do we dispel and dispute heretical teaching students have so accessible to them via social media, parentheses, mainly TikTok? is the first one. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, I, I think Jeb has something to say. Oh, no, I, I was going to say throw away your phone, but... <laughs> um, a quick answer. I have... I. I, I make sure that I am watching as many of my students' social media posts as I possibly can. And, and I think of one student, one or two students in our youth ministry in particular, um, who I've watched as 
early on, one in particular, early on, if I would have been having conversations with her about her, the things she was just simply liking on social media, I think we could have gotten ahead of the curve in some of the stuff that later she went on to embrace. Um, and and the, I, I still look at that as a big miss for me because I just saw little things like, ah, that, that's kind of just two degrees off, right? Um, and and the, down the road, that's going to be really far off. Right now, it's just a little off. But sure enough, down the road, and once she eventually got completely out of the church, um, you know, her stuff was as far away from Christ as, as could possibly be. And so I just think, like, I, we've got to get be a again, be ahead of them on social media. And that means we're there. And not only when we see their comments, we don't jump on and get into a comment fight with them because, right, that does no good whatsoever. But to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation. And another student in our ministry, I was able to do that exact thing. I said, hey, you, you liked that post. Like, did you read that post? <laughs> did you actually see? Because, like, she's one of my student leadership kids. Like, she knows better. And she's like, um, well, I just saw it said this. I'm like, well, you should have read the whole thing because then it said that, that, and that. Oh, man, I didn't see that. So, you know, sometimes I think it's just a matter of helping guide them because um, that world is, you know, it's, it's the Wild West, and, and they need their hands held through it. So, so I just say we've we got to be watching that, mm -hmm. not be afraid of it. Yeah, on that note, um, we're limited in what we can do, right? We're limited in our capacity and the amount of time we have with students. And I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now, your students are spending more time on TikTok than they are with you. That's just true, right? And so, um, so we are limited in what we can do, but that shouldn't discourage us. It should drive us to figure out how to do this better. And I think a big part of that is, is working with parents, uh, partnering with parents. I think so many parents are just completely unaware of the kinds of things that their kids are, are being fed on social media. But um, I, I think doing what we can to, to put the reality of that in front of parents and, and to helping them help guide their kids through that, I mean, it, it is insidious, right? This is the, the pipeline of all information um, into a 13, 14-year-old brain. Um, most of us didn't have that, uh, certainly not in the same way that it exists right now. Um, and most of your students' parents, because for many of you, your students' parents are, uh, you know, a generation older than you, they didn't have that either. So they're genuinely ignorant to what their kids are seeing and hearing and being told and being fed and the dangers of social media. So I think a, a big part of that is, yes, we want to we want to keep our ourselves in it, be aware of it, uh, but also we, we need a kind of raise the red flag for parents and sound the alarm a little bit for them. Chip, are, are you going to have a seminar talking about anything like that? Well, you know, we just <laughs> might. Yeah, I'm talking about intergenerational ministry, how we involve parents and adults in the church in our youth ministry. So that's mm. 3 o'clock, I think. 3 o'clock in, right, cool, in here. We recently had at our church like a, a Saturday morning meeting for parents, and we invited some tech experts from, from our church who came in to talk to parents about just these things, and it was so helpful for them to say, hey, this is how your kids get around this, and this is a helpful way that you can monitor, and it was just so helpful, because as Chip is saying, so many of the parents are like, I have no idea, 
first of all, I didn't know they were involved in that, and second of all, I don't know what to do about it. And so very helpful to, to just uh, get your brains together. Uh, but two other things I want to say real quick about the, like the, the false ideas that are being um, pressed upon our kids. One is, um, I had two thoughts. <laughs> oh, one is, I feel, feel like they need to be trained of where we look. Like, mm -hmm. what are, rep what are um, reputable sources, right? If you want to know about an issue, how do you determine what to look at and what to believe? Mm -hmm. Are you going to go to TikTok? Or what, what are, how do you determine what's a safe, um, authoritative voice in your life? Our kids have to be trained to do that. And we need to model that for them and show them, if I'm wondering about this issue, I look here. I don't look here. This is how I determine what's true and what isn't. And again, it comes back to teaching what the Bible says. This, but the second thing I just want to say, and this might be more of a parenting thing, but in our family, we've always done what we call spy the lie. right? We, we look at something that's happening in culture, whether it's in a movie or a TV show, or even the person who took up two parking spots at the grocery store. And I'll say, I'll say to my kids, like, what, what does that person have to believe to think it's okay to park like that or to leave their, gar their, their shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot? Whatever. Helping them to draw theological conclusions from behaviors that help them to, to learn how to do that so they can self-correct. And in movies, too. How often do we shut off movies and go, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? What's behind, what's this person's worldview that's making them act this way? But we can do that with our kids in our homes, but also with our community. And, and we also need to teach them how to Google um, because they will Google it. They will ask Siri. They will ask Alexa or whatever to answer their question that's often a theological question. And, and I know a lot of students will literally, they'll just Google this question. It's easier than asking somebody. So there, there's great potential when we teach and when we lead them of, like how to ask a good question to Google that will net you the right answer as opposed to everything that the internet has to offer. One more thing. Um, <laughs> and this, this is kind of dovetails with, with what we were talking about in terms of sexuality and things. Um, many of your kids, or I hope many of your kids, some of your kids at least, have really great parents. They have believing parents who are doing everything they can to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, and hopefully those kids feel, they feel freedom to ask questions of their parents when these things come up. Some of your kids won't feel that freedom. And some of your kids maybe have parents who will lead them in um, not the right direction, won't lead them towards scripture. Um, and, uh, in those cases, the cases where kids either don't feel the freedom to ask or don't have parents who are equipped to guide them, um, that's where we come in. That's where you come in. And that's why this having a relational basis to work off of is, is so, so important that they know, yeah, it's easier to just Google it, but also I, I know that I can ask my small group leader or I know that I can ask my, um, my youth pastor or I, I know that I can ask you know, the friendly old man who shakes hands at the, the front of the church or whoever it is. Like, I, I know that there's someone I can ask who's going to walk me through this, this question. So. 
Hmm. Jelly, you want to ask that next one? Donna's awesome and already answered this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, how can we spot false teachings shared on social media? And also teach students how to spot them as well. So I think you did touch on that a lot. Yeah, skip that one. Skip that one. Okay. <laughs> next. This is the next category. I love Spy the Lie. Okay, let me ask this one first. Okay. Jumping into kind of just some practicals and... I also just want you guys to know that these fine ladies and gentlemen will be around at lunch and many of them at dinner and even tomorrow morning. And so if you have questions or you asked one that you feel like didn't get answered, find them. I know them and they would love to dialogue about them. Right, guys? Yep. Good, 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 good. Um, so kind of this next category, specifically for all of us who are working in whether it's youth ministry, ministry in general, um, these are more specifics on practicals of, man, how do you avoid burnout? How do you, what do you do to rest and to Sabbath? So this first question, what is your personal rhythm for Sabbath and for boundaries in ministry, life, and work? Which is a great question. I'm actually curious to find out as well. Yeah, me too. I have no answers for this because I'm horrible, horrible, horrible example of this. Cliff? <laughs> hey, I wrote something down. Um, okay. I'm answering too much. Chris, I want to hear from you. I know this guy um, over here. Just a lot. <laughs> couple of things I wrote. Um, first off, it's, I, just, I went to the boundaries thing first. Like at night in our house, our phones go in the drawer. Our, our phones aren't by our bed. I met a youth pastor one time. He's like, I'm there 24-7 for my kids. And I'm like, well, who's there 24-7 for your family? Because if, if, if that's the boundary that you've drawn, that they're more important than what's going on at home, and you're taking that call while your kid might be having a personal crisis, yeah. uh, that to me is a, is a little yeah. scary. So, um, so I say, phone goes in the drawer. Home time is home time. You're not on call 24-7. Um, if you are on call 24-7, that means your family is as well. Um, who does your family call when you're not available for them? Um, so here are a couple practical things we did on... So I, I used to be a youth pastor. I'm an executive pastor now. So I get to help our pastors set boundaries, which is a lot of fun because I can go, I did that, don't do that, right? And, and so one of ours at our church is two days in a row off. Like I know a lot of pastors that pull the like, okay, I take Monday off and I take Saturday off. I'm like how does that facilitate rest in your home? Like how does that facilitate uh, potentially family time, that kind of thing? So in our church, we do Friday, Saturday off. And that means you gotta have your act together going into Thursday to finish everything up so that when you show up Sunday morning, you're ready to go. And there are a lot of pastors that would disagree with me on that. But, but in our world, it, it gives people two days. And, and usually for those of us with families, that means that Friday is kind of, that's like a Sabbath day. Like I can listen to my podcasts. I can mow the lawn and pray and, you know, just things like that that are, that are, are healing for me and, and beneficial in my walk with Christ. And then that Saturday gets to be that time uh, with family together. So and my wife is here, and she can tell you I don't do this perfectly. And there are times when I take the call and, or, you know, I accidentally see the text that comes in on my watch while it's dinner time, and I start getting fidgety, and I need to look at the phone, and, you know, and, and I bring those things home. But, uh, but to me, it's, it is setting good boundaries. And, like, I'll talk to your pastor, you know, like, 
<laughs> we as pastors just naturally have terrible boundaries. <laughs> it, it's, it's ingrained in us. And I think some of it comes from a mindset that we need to change. And that mindset says, um, God needs me. Mm-hmm. God needs me, right? God doesn't need a single one of us. I, I, God wants to use us and God has put us on this earth to do his work. And that was the whole point. You know, he left the church behind to do his will. But he can use anybody he wants to. And I need to get myself off my high horse that thinks it's just me and that he can't use some other means. So um, mm-hmm. that I, I start with that. Mm-hmm. So it's not a complete, like, I didn't tell you about my quiet time and what that looks like first thing in the morning or anything like that. But, but set clear boundaries and then be held accountable to them. Mm-hmm. And live them out and then set those for the people that are underneath you as mm-hmm. well. You know, just about um, setting those boundaries, I just want to add to what Cliff said, that I have found such joy when I say no to things, which I say no to things all the time. It's very freeing. Try it. (laughs) Um, But I find such joy when I connect people. The the person who's asking me for something, I connect them with someone else who can meet that need. Hmm. And so often the someone else that I connect them with is someone who's not up front who maybe doesn't get asked often and is really blessed and has time in their schedule. And it ends up being such a sweet thing. So I would encourage you to sometimes be the bridge. You know, mm. help the person who has the desire to meet weekly with a disciple or whatever, to find the, the woman who's never been asked. It's really sweet. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have just for the longest time been so fascinated by the idea of Sabbath and what it practically looks like. Because I think we look at scripture and we're like, oh, one full day off a week. And we're like, oh, that was so cool for them. That's just impossible. And then we just move (laughs) on. (laughs) But for me, it comes down to priorities. Um, Mm -hmm. For Johnny and I, we, and like Cliff said, we don't do this perfectly. Like we really try to get into a rhythm of like, I really wish I had two days off a week, but we have Saturday, Sunday service. You want service. me to talk to your pastor? Yeah, could okay. you? Um, <laughs> but for me, a Monday is my day off or, and Friday. And so, like, Monday is, like, our day. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean lock ourselves up in our house. It could be, like, hey, we're going to drive down to San Diego today because we love it. And we're just getting to enjoy, like, each other and creation. Really, it's, like, there's no – I'm not trying to produce anything today and, like – make something happen. For me, I'm such a people pleaser. Like, excellence is really important to me, so I will work overload to make sure that something happens. Um, And for me, taking a Sabbath is like direct war against that mentality. Mm -hmm. And it's very uncomfortable. Like, when I'm in busy seasons, like we're walking into Christmas season, Sabbath will will be very hard (laughs) during the Christmas season because church is crazy. But like, when I finish that season and I've got like, you know, the Yuletide time off, it will be uncomfortable for me to do nothing. Mm. But like that, the very act of sitting in that discomfort of like, I'm not going to check my email. Even on my maternity leave that I've been on right now, it's like, this is designated time for me to rest. And it's so uncomfortable, but it is doing war against my flesh that says what Cliff said, like, Mm. they need me. I have to be there. I am integral to this operation. Um, so for those of you that mm-hmm. maybe th- think that same way, I love to think of it as like I'm, I am doing battle against 
the pride that would say that I'm so necessary to mm -hmm. the to the situation. So for us, like I said, it's we try to do um, a day a week. Um, and that could also include like dinner with friends. It's just like enjoying life together. And then we try, I'd say at least twice a year, once every six months to do like a couple days away to just disconnect and unplug um, from work. The phone thing is huge too, leaving our phones in our kitchen when we go to bed at night. Um, because yeah, we just don't need to be so connected to everything all the time. I think if you consider scripture, every idol of the human heart, God has set up an altar for us to sacrifice the importance of that idol in front of us. Okay, so if you worship money, God institutes a tithe. If you worship, um, if you worship self-involvement, God institutes the act of worship. If you institute, and for those of us who bow at the throne of busyness, God's instituted the Sabbath. They're basically altars set up to say that this doesn't control me, something else does. And, and I'll just steal Donna's idea really quick and to look at your own life. I just came from a church where I received two wards in front of the whole staff, and both were seasons where I wanted to quit and cry, and my wife didn't like that I was working at a church. And I got the Golden Dump Truck Award, which meant I was going above and beyond. I was running two different ministries, two different full-time jobs, while being a teaching pastor at the church, 11, 12 young adults, and I was a teaching pastor, and that's when I got my awards. I think there's something uh, there's something systemic in some churches where we award the very thing that we claim to be against. We want to create healthy cultures and healthy staff members, but we keep giving people raises and we keep affirming people for how much they're working over what their job description is. I would say for me, the spy the lie thing that I'm going to steal from Donna is what I have to ask myself. My busyness comes from an insecurity of mine. Maybe yours comes from something different. I'm afraid someone else is going to step in and do that job in my stead. I'm afraid that I'm going to get overlooked for the next promotion because I'm lazy. I'm afraid that someone's going to think that I am not working for the sake of the gospel uh, or that someone's going to miss out on something. Those are all, those are just, they're just lies. And um, so, and, and the other lie that I think we fall into is a lot of our busyness at B-U-S-Y is because you said yes is why you're schedule so jam-packed and that's what I realized for myself and it all comes down to one main question which is are you pursuing your potential or your calling if you know what you're doing if you have a personal mission statement it's a lot easier to say no to things because you just say that doesn't have my name on it not my monkey not my circus no thank you if you don't you just become this amorphous yes man or yes woman that just you don't know why you do what you do so mine was I am going to help to disciple the 11th and 12th graders who walk into my ministry in North County San Diego and so I was like well will you, will you come speak at this cross city event well is it going to interfere with anything else and here's the last thing I'll say priorities only matter when they come into conflict with one another there it is okay so your priorities you can go this is first and second and third priority Priorities only matter when they conflict with one another. Because my first priority can be my family. My second can be my uh, job. Obviously, God trumps everything. First can be family. Second be, can be job. Third can be friends. The only time that priorities ever matter is when job and family come into conflict with one another. When my ability to be good dad and ability to be good worker are in direct conflict. That's the only time priorities matter. Other than that, it's just you scheduling your life. So these are all things that I need to hear. These are things that I struggle with. My busyness is my own insecurity. Uh, it's not because people really need me. It's because I want to be needed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll recommend a really a book that was great for me and a, a lot of people I'm around. John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he'll just slap you in the face about Sabbath if you want to have some fun with that one. So 
Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer. There's another one, too, called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, but it's W-H-O-L-L-Y, and it, she kind of breaks down just the Jewish tradition of Sabbath and how to integrate it into our lives and uh, with a lot of grace, obviously, um, knowing that we can't all do it perfectly, but for like a, a practical breakdown of, of why it exists and um, what it can look like for us today, that's a great one, too. Let me ask one final question because I'm sure that like everyone at one point has either felt this, is currently feeling it, has had to walk through it. Um, and I think for me, it's like this is why we're reading Second Timothy this week. <laughs> um, it says this, when you are ready to quit ministry, what keeps you going? Which first just makes me like want to be sad because... Is, it's hard. You know, when I saw that question, the first thing that came to my mind is that I don't, I think that we should not define ministry as something that's a job or mm -hmm. full time, or, but it's just, it's your life when you belong to the Lord. So mm -hmm. to me, we don't walk away from ministry unless we walk away from the Lord, right? Because when we're His, then we're looking for opportunities mm -hmm. to be his hands and feet to mm -hmm. our neighbors and our families and our, or our youth. So, yeah, it's a different question for mm -hmm. me. I, I, if the question is, sometimes I don't feel like being a youth volunteer anymore. And then that is definitely, a, that it might be the right time in your life to step, there are a lot of good reasons to step away from that. But we don't step away from being a minister. Mm -hmm. I also just want to quote Donna, because <laughs> uh, I, th it's even been a good. I mean, to be to be completely honest, I'm in that season of like, what does it look like to step away from full time vocational ministry? Is more what I'm saying because it just gets so complicated. And and Donna said something uh, yesterday morning of like, did someone in your job interview ask you like, are you willing to suffer? And I was like, oh. I forgot that that's part of the job, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, sometimes we feel like we can go to work at these churches and it looks like it's so awesome, I've got my office and like, you know, they pay part of my phone bill or whatever, I don't know. It's like great, a great place to work, we think of that. It's like, oh, this is a great workplace. Um, but it's not, it's not um, work as the world would define it, it is ministry. That is, regardless of whether or not you're getting a paycheck, and we're promised that there is suffering involved with that. It, it would be easier in a lot of ways for me to just leave that behind and go be a real estate agent in this booming market or whatever. Um, but it's like, is this what God is really calling me to? And, it, and then if so, like, okay, am I willing to suffer for it, whatever that suffering looks like? Now, granted, we can reach seasons where the suffering just feels like, this is too much. And that just might mean like, hey, maybe for the sake of my own soul, I just need to take a pause for a moment rather than push through it. Um, but I think making sure in this, I'm in a season of trying to even find older like women in ministry to say like, can you help me navigate what this feeling is? Like, do I just need a pause? Am I doing something wrong? Um, is this just par for the course? So finding those mentors that have walked a similar path to even say, like, what, am I alone in this? Is this say that something's wrong with me? Um, a safe place to kind of ask all those questions. 
There's a cool, the, the, the Bible is chock full of people who want to quit. And it's <laughs> really interesting to watch God's response to those people. Like I think of Elijah in the Old Testament who basically tries to commit Hebrew suicide. He exposes himself to the elements and God gives him food and a nap and tells him to keep going. You know what I mean? And so sometimes that, that might be sufficient for that. Um, uh, yeah, Paul, obviously in the New Testament, he talks about all those things that happened to him, but um, I, I'll just leave it at that. I'm, I'm going to talk about more tonight. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> I just wrote here, and this is, a, we're, we're, we're about an audience of one, and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning, but I also wrote, just in a practical way, remember that the loudest voices usually actually don't represent the majority. And just a kind of a life lesson, don't make a major decision like stepping away mm. from your role when you're extra tired, someone has hurt your feelings, your students don't appreciate you. There's something hard going on in your life. I mean, sometimes we just need to wait until we get through the hard season, and then mm -hmm. it doesn't look quite so discouraging. <laughs> Wait, one more thing. I, wait, can I, here, can I, you're the emeritus, so you. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, I recommended this night one, but I'm going to recommend it here again because this has really kept me going in some seasons of ministry. It's uh, the it's uh, by Tim Keller, and it is uh, Every Good Endeavor. And Every Good Endeavor basically says, it's what I use with my small group leaders a lot, and you guys can steal this if you want to, where they set up their house for the 20 students to come over and two show up. And um, sometimes on surface value, right? Think about Jesus at the end of his ministry. His disciples have abandoned him. He's hanging on a cross. He's been humiliated. He's naked. They've, they've mocked him with a sign above his head. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. And then he basically says, I did it, <laughs> right? And, like, and, and every demographic, like, analytical datum point, he failed. Where are your friends? Where's your ministry? Where's the success? Where are all these things? And he's like, I did what I was supposed to do. And I think that's what's really important that I always encourage my small group leaders is I say, what was your response to two students showing up? And they're like, well, I, I poured in them, I did it, and I tell them, you did it. You did what you were supposed to do. God is glorified in us fulfilling the calling that he's given us, not in the pragmatic things that flow out of that. And so, so many times in my season of ministry, the reasons that I've wanted to quit is I wasn't getting the accolades I wanted. I'm not getting the promotion that I wanted. I'm, I'm being uh, overused and under um, appreciated, and in all those things, it's it's always a miss of what my main calling is, and it's always when I forget, I'm doing a good work because God's called me to do this work, and I'm doing what he's told me to do. Mm -hmm. At the end of my life, that's why I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servants, because I was inside of his will. Inside of his will, there's nothing that I fear. Outside of his will, there's nothing that I should want. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much.